All right. Well, Hare Krishna to Makini, and thank you so much for joining us today to do this interview. You know, it's been challenging for a lot of the devotees to get on and do these interviews. It's you know, always so many factors involved with everybody's, you know, our fears and public speaking, all of that comes up. So thank you so much for being courageous enough to join us. And welcome to all the devotees that have joined us on um, the Zoom. Um, I'm going to start today by reading Mahini's um, bio so we can get a little sense of who she is and get a little picture of her that we can unpack in our interview. So uh, Mohini was born in southeast, in the southeast of England to a Portuguese mother and a Belgian father. Age 18, she moved to the north England, to north of England to attend University of Liverpool. <clears throat> At that time, she began leading the journey of self-discovery, collection of essays, interviews, and lectures of Shri Prabhupada and strongly related with the teachings about the soul. A couple of years later, she attended her first Namhat and began regularly practicing Krishna consciousness. When her course at the university was coming to an end, Mohini moved to Karuna Bhavan, the Iskon Temple in Scotland, where she spent the next five years. Her main service was book distribution. Other services she did included making garlands, bathing and dressing the beautiful Devi of Brinda Devi, resides there along with the main deities of Sri Sri Kalinamita, Mayapur Shashi. After five years, she moved back to the south of England, desiring to have a child with her first husband. She spent some months in an Ayurvedic clinic in South India in preparation for becoming a mother and mainly received the treatment for type 1 diabetes, which Mohini has had since childhood. Her daughter, Naika, was born the following year in 2010. Her first marriage didn't last, although she continued with her bhakti practices. In 2017, she met Shavitrapalari Swami. Together with her partner, Madame Mohan Das, they received Harinam initiation from him at that time. And two years later, they received Diksha Mantras at, at Madhava in Costa Rica. In recent years, they hold a home Namhat every Sunday and help run the popular public sangha and write weekly, which includes a mixture of devotees from different sanghas and new people coming every week. Mohini has a keen interest in health and Ayurveda, and she loves to cook for devotees and serve them for salvam. That's a very nice pile of things in her life. So <clears throat> I'm going to just start off by Asking you, Mohini, if growing up, if there was any clues that you had in your life that you weren't going to just live a, a normal, materialistic life. 
um well yeah i suppose um so uh, yeah i mean one of the things that i always feel helped me was having the kind of mixed background of different nationalities of my parents because i never really identified with any you know any particular nationality although i was born in england and grew up here but um you know how it was with my uh, I mean, my parents only spoke in English to us, so like I'm not I'm not fluent in Portuguese, or um, I mean I can understand it, but um, just the um, um, yeah, I guess I was so, sort of saw things from a kind of an outside point of view, like the way that they would talk about like how English people are, or um, uh, these kind of things. I didn't really feel as if I sort of fitted in anywhere. Um, I uh, I was uh, my my mom was is Catholic so I was kind of brought up Catholic and um, and I did I mean I remember being about um, eleven and I mean I always had a rosary and I used to sometimes chant on it but I remember when I left the primary school at eleven then I um, I did kind of like make a little vow that every day throughout the summer holidays I would like you know chant my rounds on my rosary um every day i was i was felt um you know i was i always felt like the presence of of god i always felt like i could i was always like speaking to him you know kind of internally um mm. i uh yeah i mean when i was a bit older like i guess sort of slightly older i started to wonder oh is there really really a god but then i did come back to to that again um also, I guess because of in my like young childhood, my parents separated when I was um, seven, and I think I was eight when they divorced, and that was all very messy. Um, and uh, I, 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 again, I think it, it again. I just didn't. I felt very um, apart from. Uh, you know just everything in the world and, that, and actually I was very sad at, at that time although like externally around people I wouldn't be but when I was on my own everything was really um too much and I think you know by about that about that age at about eight years old I remember just wishing and praying to be just taken out of this mm -hmm. you know this this existence um yeah so uh yeah i guess maybe those kind of things um as i say when i when i got a little bit older then i then i started to um uh kind of read more things myself like i didn't exactly pursue catholicism i didn't um i didn't like take my confirmation or anything but when i was about kind of 13 14 i started to read books more of i guess kind of eastern spirituality i read like the teachings of buddha and things like that thinking that um there is definitely something, but I wasn't really sure what it was. Um, yeah, so I guess, yeah, I guess those, those sort of things. And then. Nice, oh, lovely. And aside, I see, so as a child, your parents divorced when you were quite young, and you also had type 1 diabetes. And how did that affect you as a child? Because that can be quite, um, the might of children I've known that have had it, it's really 
changed their lives a lot from being kind of normal with other kids and things that they could do and activities. So how did it limit you and maybe give you a different perspective on life? Um, yeah, I suppose. Well, I mean, because generally I remember when I was very young, I remember that I never liked I, I never liked eating. <laughs> I found it really difficult to eat. I remember like being like five, six years old and always being the last one left at the table. And it, it took me like, I just never really felt like eating. So eating for me was always quite difficult anyway. So then when, so when I was 11, I was, I was diagnosed um, with type one diabetes in, uh, um, yeah, basically, I'd, it was in 1993, and I'd um, f for a while. I think people had been noticing that I'd that I'd gotten very thin because um, that's obviously one of the symptoms because your um, you know because your body stops producing insulin, so you, so you your body can't get the energy from the sugar anymore, so it takes it from all the fat. So usually, one of the symptoms is you get very thin and you get very thirsty because you're trying to dilute all of that you know all that sugar in your system so I was drinking and drinking all the time and then uh, I remember one day I was I was staying with my dad actually my mum was away and uh, and uh, yeah I remember one day I couldn't anything that I ate or or drank I couldn't keep anything down I was just throwing it up so um, my, my neighbour took me to the doctor and the doctor said I think that she, you might be diabetic and you better go to the hospital so I went to the hospital and um, I don't, I know how in, uh, I, they measure it slightly differently in the US, the, the blood sugar levels is a slightly different reading, but like in the UK, we say like an average um, uh, uh, sugar level for a non-diabetic person is between four and seven. So that's like a kind of a normal level. Um, and the machine in the hospital could read it up to 80 um, and it couldn't read my blood sugar level. It was, it, it was, it was too high. They said I was almost in a coma. But I mean, I didn't feel too bad. I just, uh, um, I, I just, yeah. So when I was diagnosed, I was, I was put on a drip, um, you know, of, of insulin and glucose, and tried to get my my levels back. And I remember, I do remember in the hospital thinking thinking about it, and it kind of dawning on me for like a brief moment that this is, um, you know, this is going to be injections for the rest of my life. <laughs> but I guess. I mean, people say that children are very resilient and I suppose you are more resilient when, when you're young. Um, so, and at that time, cause like I say, that was nearly, that was like 29 years ago that now. So then um, things are very different now, but at that time I only had to take two injections a day. It was just one injection in the morning and one in the evening, um, like 20 minutes before breakfast and 20 minutes before dinner. And then I'd have to eat, you know, breakfast lunch and dinner with a snack in between and I'd have to I learn how to um, you know like what how much carbohydrate is in everything for a snack I'd have to have 30 grams of carbohydrate for a meal have to have 60 grams so um, yeah I mean by that time eating was a little bit easier for me anyway and I suppose maybe um, it like I said it didn't seem too much of a hassle when I was a when I was a child um, mm. I mean, actually, it's funny because if I ever had, you know, sometimes in school you have to, they ask you to do like a presentation on something and like I'd always choose to do it on diabetes because <laughs> it was like an easy thing to mm -hmm. explain to people. And um, 
one of my friends recently, she was saying to me, because I've known her since school, and she was saying to me that I was um, made it seem very easy. <laughs> um, so back then it was, and actually these days, uh, it's quite different with, with, with how, how people take insulin um, because of more modern insulins and because of the, the way that they act. So um, now I have to take a lot more injections than I used to. So as a child, I felt as if it was actually probably a bit easier than it, than it is now, mm -hmm. although you know, it's different now because they say it's, it's supposed to be a bit more flexible. But um, yeah, I didn't... Um, uh, yeah, I didn't, I didn't, I don't remember finding it too much of a hassle. I just remember thinking that, oh, it's something that I just have to get on with. I, what you were saying about early signs as well, I suppose I remember from being very young, always having an, like an understanding of karma. Like I remember being a little, very young, maybe, and, and like kind of, I was like skipping around the table. And I remember like, I thought some thought that wasn't very nice. And then I accidentally like whacked my arm on the table by accident. And I, and I remember thinking at the time, oh, I'm sorry, like to God, or, you know, I'm sorry that I thought of that as if that was like a reaction. So mm. I always felt like everything that happens, there was something, there's something behind it. Um, so I guess I sort of took it in that way that for yeah. whatever reason I was meant to have this. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. So does it, does it, prevent you from doing things in your life now that you would want to be doing like travel does that affect traveling or anything um, like that like generally no I mean I've, I've always done it you know it's never really stopped me from doing anything that I wanted to do um it's just um I suppose in terms of travel um it would be probably be difficult to live in a different country i don't know well i mean in in the uk we're very fortunate with the nhs the national health system so for example if someone has type 1 diabetes you get um insulin on prescription and you wouldn't have to pay for it whereas like in many other countries you you would have to um so probably a lot of countries i couldn't actually live in but, i mean i've spent um i haven't traveled so much recently I suppose no, nobody has in the last couple of years but um, uh, when I did I mean last time I was in India was about ooh, maybe nearly 13 years ago um, that, that was at the, the Ayurvedic clinic and there, that time I was there for three months and so I just made sure I had enough supplies of everything to last me um, mm. for those three months but yeah, gen generally it doesn't stop me from doing anything. I mean, unless, I mean, obviously because I have to try to keep my levels as normal as possible, that that's um, a constant challenge because it's it's difficult. It's difficult because, I, you know, I say I, I have to know how much carbohydrate I'm eating and how much insulin to take. I have like a ratio of like one unit of insulin for 10 grams of carbs, but it's it's really hard to get it right. It's really, really hard because there's so many factors that um, affect your blood sugar. Like it's not just it's not just insulin and food. It's so many things. It can be the weather. It can be stress. It can be, you know, so many things. So so obviously if if my sugar level goes quite high, it's harder for me to do to do things because I don't feel very much energy. Or again, if it's if it's low, it might it might postpone things that I need to get done, but I I'll still get them done. But it's just uh, mm. yeah, sometimes it kind of gets in the way quite a lot. But yeah, it's just, well, it sounds like you you've learned to manage it. I mean, you've been doing it for a lot of years, and as a child, somehow you were <clears throat> it wasn't 
you, it didn't affect you so much. It didn't, you know, a couple, you had a couple insulin shots a day that seemed okay to you and didn't. So are you a pretty positive person in general? Kind I think so. I, do, <clears throat> I think so. I try, yeah, generally I, I, I am a bit like that. Yeah, I try to try to look on the bright side. Actually, the more difficult thing than having than the injections was actually, which I don't have to do now, is the um the, f the finger pricking. You know, when you have to check your, I don't know if you know people that you know they have yeah. to you know squeeze a drop of blood out your finger and check your blood sugar level. But now there's new technology. There's I have a sensor on my arm which um, monitors my sugar level, and I just I just I just scan it, um, and it tells oh, wow. me what my sugar level is. So I don't have to prick my fingers anymore. but when I was a child that was the thing that was more difficult than doing the injections because I really had to psych myself up to to do the finger pricking that was that yeah was and you'd have to do yeah. that every eventually day. I got used to it <clears throat> you'd have to yeah do you're supposed to do it like several times a day yeah um like four to six times a day something like that oh my. yeah oh wow. so then what was that that was in your life that kind of got you to take the road towards Krishna? What were the yeah, events um, that led to that? Well, um, yeah, as I said, so when I was about sort of kind of 14, 15, I started reading books to do with more like Eastern spirituality, like I mentioned, like the Buddhism and, um, mm -hmm. and uh, yeah, I basically, as when I was young, growing up, I was always very interested in, um, like, I always understood that things that what you see on the surface, that's not all there is, there's always something behind it. So, so as a child, I always, um, I liked, I like to read books about like, um, understanding um, people's handwriting, for example, mm. or like read books about body language, or I had a book about face reading, you know, to, to read what, like, what, what people's features are like and what it can mean about their personality and, um, or like interpreting dreams and things. I always like to find out like what's behind um, mm. the, the way that things are that we see them. So, and again, so when I was about that, that age, I guess about 15, I started to realize that um, I, I felt like this life is not the only life that I've had. I felt as if that, that, you know, that's a strange idea to think as if this is the only life that we've had. So I, I had this understanding that there must be more. Um, and yeah, I read a few different books. Um, I also, I think about that age, I came across a, um, a book by Osho. Um, I don't know if you heard of Osho. He was like this. I've heard, yes. yes. Um, so because actually I found a book actually in the library, it was called From From Medication to Meditation. So mm. that was quite appealing to me, obviously, perhaps because of the medical side as well. And it was just lots of questions and answers. And um, I, I don't know if it was necessarily spiritual, but um, certainly the things that I read kind of probably helped me to understand some more subtle things. Like at that time, I was not vegetarian. I didn't grow up vegetarian. But, um, you know, he was explaining why, um, why, why it's important to be or the difference that it that it makes when somebody eats meat, um, you know, when they eat an animal mm. that's been killed um, in terms of the subtle effects, you know, if, if someone was about to like, 
you know, murder you, everything that would go through your body and mind at that point, all the toxins and all the fear and everything, and how that floods your system. And then he was explaining this book that so then when people eat that, it affects their consciousness. So I started to like think more about these kind of things. And then soon after that became became vegetarian. And um, then I remember, I guess as I got into my late teens, um, kind of sort of 17, 18, I, um, I, did, I sort of, I guess like a lot of us do experiment with um, various kind of hallucinogenic um, substances and um so I, I remember at that time I remember being like 17 and uh like tr tripping and just basically I just it was always such a um a strong feeling that it it was very obvious that there is God um and that all this beauty that, that that's around us that God is behind um all of that so um, I had this kind of understanding, but I also wanted, I, I hoped that um, uh, I, I wanted to be able to, um, to, to experience that, that connection without, without taking anything. I appreciated that if I, when I did take these things that I felt it. Um, and also, because one of the biggest things for me in, in that feeling of, of that connection was that um, uh, I... Uh, as I say, I was, I was quite young and I, I had this vivid memory of being at a music festival, actually, Glastonbury Festival, and, um, and that, that, like the first time of, ta of taking something like this, taking LSD. And, um, but what I, what, the, the thing that was really, I just, I just couldn't stop laughing. I was just laughing and laughing for what seemed like hours and hours. But it has felt as if that was you know that was something intrinsic to that to the connection with with the lord that actually everything is just so funny that like you know really he's he's the best joker and actually you know we know now <laughs> that you know krishna really is the best joker um but like like i said it was these kind of feelings that i want i wanted to um i wanted to to experience but not not from not from actually taking something so when i was um when I was at university, I'd, I'd had some books for a couple of years. When I was about 16, I'd met devotees on the street and I bought a couple of books. I bought a Sri Upanishad and this journey of self-discovery that I mentioned. And um, I had a little look at them, but they didn't really make much sense to me at that time. But then when I went to university, I took all my books with me and I just started reading this journey of self-discovery. And from the very beginning, the first chapter when Prabhupada was explaining about the soul, and that, you know, we're eternal and we transmigrate through different bodies. And it was just, I, I felt as if I knew, I, I knew it, you know, I knew it. And I went in the past when I tried to talk to people about it, especially in my hometown, I think they just thought I was a bit crazy. Um, but when I, so when I read this book, I, I thought, wow, it actually, um, it, it, it is true. Um, but I didn't, I mean, I didn't sort of start practicing then. I just liked the books. Um, and then I um, I met some devotees on the street in Liverpool, and I and I got a CD. There was um, the, basically there was a travelling Sankirtan party um, of, of devotees that would travel around the north of England. Although they were they were they were from the temple in Scotland, but they would travel around the north of England. And uh, one of the things that they would distribute 
as as well as books was these cds by the goranga powered band <laughs> which were these devotees in scotland who would play like kind of really heavy distorted guitars and it sounded kind of like grungy kind of like just i don't know really heavy but with lots of chanting um so i mean i liked rock music so i used i got this this cd on the on the street um uh, and I and I used to listen to it and it, and and, and it, yeah it had lots of chanting and I used to chant along with it um, and yeah I really liked I really liked the, the chanting a lot it wasn't just the Maha Mantra there was also lots of Gorangas and Goranga Hey <laughs> chant and uh, and then on the inside cover of that CD I remember it said um, read Bhagavad Gita as it is um, so mm. I kept thinking about this Bhagavad Gita as it is uh, and I used to try to find the devotees on the street to try to get a copy but for some reason I couldn't I couldn't find them and then a friend of mine at university his he had some family members who were devotees so he got me a Bhagavad Gita um, and uh, I read a little bit of it but I, not not so much but then um, uh, yeah so I, I so from the first couple of years at university I'd, I, I'd read bits of the books and hadn't started practicing and then uh, as I say when I had, had these these experiences of, of feeling connected but wanting to wanting to feel it within a, in a sober state of mind and then yeah one day the thing that actually made me go to the first Namhat was um, I mentioned this before in a, uh, another conversation that I, I did with Narad but um, uh, I guess because it was quite significant for me because I'd been I'd been to Amsterdam and I'd posted myself back some magic mushrooms and um, I'd, I'd, ta I'd taken them in a park in Liverpool and all of the, all the things that I'd read in Prabhupada's books um, just seeming more and more real um, and I felt like um, just also how, how it's explained about how you know the type of body that one takes according to one's activities like for example you know one gets a tree body because of certain activities and I remember seeing a group of trees and feeling as if um, I knew the kind of people that they were to be to have gotten those bodies and anyway during that time I decided that I would go to the Namaha because actually the, the my um, partner at the time he he'd gone to a, a couple of namahats, and um, and he told me that the devotees were really nice. But I, I wasn't I wasn't sure whether I wanted to go because I thought you know sometimes you hear the, the phrase Hari Krishna and it's a bit of a oh well, there might be something really strange, so I didn't go. But that that time uh, I decided no I have to go I have to meet these monks because I think maybe maybe they will know you know maybe they know what they're talking about and maybe this is this is what i need to hear so so the next day that was in uh february 2003 i went to uh to the first namahat and uh one devotee who at that time his name was nasingadev das um now he's called nasingavalaba but he was nasingadev das and he's a scottish devotee and he was giving the talk and he's very um He's, he's a very direct devotee. Generally, Scottish people are quite good at being direct and straightforward. They don't mess around with their words. <laughs> and uh, so he, he would preach in that way. And I, I really appreciated it. When I went to that Namaha that day, I felt like this is exactly what I wanted to hear, um, how the devotees would explain what the material world is like 
it was just like uh, music to my ears I suppose like you know that was I it was like I kind of knew it but you know when they explain it that way and so from that point from that first Namaha I got I got um Kantimala and I got um Japa beads and I started chanting Japa and the Kirtans um was so uh, I mean at, the, at that time Namaha in Liverpool there, there was no temple there so it was just in a room in the public library um just a small room and there was just a few of us there was the, the devotee giving the class and maybe about maybe about four four of us in the room it was just a small group um but when uh, they would start with a little bit of kirtan just with cartels and um the the effect of the kirtan was the, the most powerful thing i'd ever felt actually i i, I felt that it was um i felt during when i was singing and concentrating i could f actually feel that i was that i was not my body <laughs> i i could feel that um it was uh yeah it was just it was making me um realize that so it had a big effect and as i say from that point i started going to the normal huts every week and there was a, a group of traveling sankirtan devotees and they uh, so there was about i guess about four of them so each week it would be a different devotee giving the talk and um i just i appreciated those talks so much and i just liked all the different qualities of the devotees how you know some devotee like for example nasinga prabhu he was very like direct and straightforward um another devotee he was like extremely enthusiastic and another devotee when he would speak i would just feel that i loved krishna so much <laughs> like the way that he would um speak so really i guess yeah like it was the the kirtan and the devotees that i just thought um you know these are the the best like i never met anybody like this and that's why after about um i went to those numb huts for about a year um and at that time i guess i was in my last year i suppose it was probably my last two years at university and as i was as my course was nearly finishing there there these um i just yeah i just didn't i didn't want anything else and um i mean up until that point i wasn't sure what to do after university anyway i was thinking of maybe traveling um and doing some uh, maybe this they have this this thing called woofing you know this what's it called worldwide um workers on organic farms i was thinking of perhaps traveling and working on farms or something like that but once yeah once i met the devotees i just i just wanted to live with them so um I, th I thought about living in a temple in Manchester where I visited, um, but because the devotees um, who were doing the Namahats, because they were based in Scotland, they encouraged me to uh, to move there. Uh, so yeah, that's uh, yeah, that's that's what I did. I was still I was still finishing my course at the time, but I remember I wrote I wrote my dissertation while living in the temple, and then I just went wow. back to Liverpool to hand it in um what was your yeah but it was, was good because study? i could yeah, oh yeah i was gonna say it because uh i, I my course was called media and cultural studies um mm. again it wasn't i didn't plan to do that i actually thought i would always study english um language but then it, as it worked out i i ended up doing media and i was interested in in the media uh but not because i never wanted to work in it i was just interested in it because it's it's interesting how it how it how it's constructed and how it controls 
the world, you know, like how. So that was why I studied it. But, but, but with that sort of course, it, it was great that um, when it came to writing my dissertation, I and because I was learning about Krishna consciousness at the time, I wrote it as um, a comparison between things that we were taught on the course in, of different kind of, um, uh, how do you say, like, um, um, oh, I can't think of the word. Um, these people that come up with like social theories and stuff um uh not sociologists but, um you know these, um, so maybe uh but yeah philosophers i suppose yeah um like from, yeah we were taught you know different yeah different social theories and different philosophies so my dissertation was a comparison between between them and what what was in Prabhupada's books <laughs> so wow. it helped me also to to learn more so I could so I study Prabhupada's books more and then put what I was learning into my dissertation and uh wonderful yeah and it also yeah it really helped me a lot on the course actually um because mm. I, I remember when I was studying sometimes we they, people you know the, the lecturers would be explaining concepts and people would seem like kind of confused by it but because I was thinking about it from the perspective of how how Prabhupada presented things and how you know we're not the body or the mind but we're the soul and then then it, it made more sense <laughs> to me wow. but yeah that was why I did my dissertation on um I guess you could say a kind of sort of west west versus east um mm -hmm. philosophy mm -hmm. but yeah it's good but yeah. then I didn't really but like I said I didn't really want to do anything to I just, I, I more the re, the main reason why I went to university really was because I just wanted to to move far away, <laughs> and I just I thought if I um get my my A level grades, which in the UK you need A levels to go to university, so I just figured if once once I've got my A levels, then I can just move far away. <laughs> um, so what were you yeah, moving away from? I had a plan. <laughs> yeah, what were you trying? Oh, to I just I moved from. I didn't. Um, well, my, like I say, like even. From when I was very young, my my life was I was felt I felt quite sad. My life was quite serious. I didn't um uh my my family situation was very difficult. My like I say, the, my parents' breakup was extremely difficult. They never after they divorced, they never spoke to each other. They really there was a lot of hatred there, especially from my mum's side to my dad, which you know maybe is justified, but um and uh, and also my mum bless her because she's lovely um she also had a very difficult upbringing and there's you know all sorts of um horrible histories in her family but um i I'm perhaps as a consequence of her own bring upbringing she was very um uh how would you say very, like very controlling <laughs> um and uh i just i found it's very very difficult uh to, to live with her so i couldn't want to get away um yeah no no in my family there was never really any good sort of communication or, or anything like that so um yeah i just i just wanted to live my own life and not not feel that i was controlled it was a bit difficult because i felt as if my um, i would spend some time some time with my father um but it, my mom and dad were kind of like opposites in that way, whereas my mom was very controlling um, and very um, kind of strict. Um, but my dad was the complete opposite. He was more like, you know, just do what you want. You know, it's your life. Do what you want. <laughs> and that, so I liked being around him. But maybe 
you know again there's pros and cons because maybe that's maybe sometimes if someone's like that maybe it's a sign that maybe they don't care so much you know if they're just you mm. know kind of do whatever you want but either way I mean we kind of you know we've always we've always got along okay um, um my, my mom and me and my, my dad left his body six, six years ago um on Varaha Dwadashi um oh. so actually because we've just had Varaha Dwadashi a few days ago so I was thinking it was the sixth anniversary of him leaving but yeah I guess yeah oh. sorry sorry in answer to your question yeah I just wanted to be able to feel that I was living my own life and not um not not so controlled um yeah it's interesting how you know having a <clears throat> not too bad i mean not completely horrible family life but having it not be so satisfying a lot of devotees have that be, you know and it i know for myself it helped me to be able to detach from my family and come to krishna mm. consciousness because if i would have been really attached to my parents it would have been really really hard to have taken that drastic kind of step away from everything that they believed in so i do see that it was a real blessing that there wasn't you know some really strong strong attachment to to parents mm. yeah it and, is a, it is a blessing yeah Thanks. and wanting it to be blessing, yeah i also yeah. you know went to university to be away from home <laughs> i mean that was like i wanted to be away from my you know and that's also you know i met devotees and at the university also so it's nice that you were able to finish your degree a lot of devotees don't finish you know they and then they're sorry later on when they're householders and trying to you know make yeah. ends meet and it's 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 difficult that they don't have that so I was very emphatic with my son that he was going to go to college, no matter if he, you, know, if you don't want to do it, it's okay, you're going to get a degree because one day you're going to be married and you're going to be really happy that you have at least something, some kind of a degree in. So yeah, he did. He got through it somehow. Yeah. So you went, so you did, you moved to, so you moved to Scotland to, uh, to the, Hare Krishna temple there. It was a temple or a um like a preaching center. So yeah, it's a temple. It's been there since um I think 1980, maybe 86, something like that. Um and it's it's some um, like kind of converted farm buildings. It's in it's in mm. a village in the south of Scotland. And over the years they kind of purchased more of the farm buildings so it's like various um buildings kind of going up a hill so at the bottom of the hill um there's the ashrams i don't even i don't think they have a ladies ashram anymore actually i think now it's a guest house but they just have the brahmachari ashram but at the time when i lived there there was ladies ashram men's ashram at the bottom of the hill and then halfway up the hill there was um radha ashram which was like the office and where we'd um fill up our books in the morning fill up our book bags and, uh, and then at the top of the hill um, was like, which originally probably would have been, I guess, like the farmhouse and the barns. Um, that was the barns were converted to be like the um, the temple room itself, which was kind of attached to the like the, the original farmhouse and the kitchen. And um, yeah, so it is an actual temple. In fact, now I think, although the official name of it is Karuna Bhavan, but I think now they call it Krishna Eco Farm. 
because um, um, since I, I left there, they've mm. they've made some, they've got some like wind turbines and some, they grow a lot more um, fruit and vegetables and flowers than they used to when I was there. They have some huge big greenhouses, um, which um, used to be um, full of Tulsi. They had hundreds of Tulsi plants. Um, yeah. But now I think mainly they use those greenhouses for growing flowers for the deities. So uh, yeah, there's an actual temple, yeah. And what was your experience there? You 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 seem to like really brighten up when you talk about it. Um, no, well, yeah, I loved it. I loved it. I really did. Yeah, I mean, when I first moved there, um, my uh, first I just stayed back in the temple, and I would just do various services, cleaning, laundry, and things like that. Um, but there, there was a, a, a guru there at the time who, um, I mean, it's kind of a bit of a sad story what happened with him, you know, he kind of wasn't always acting properly and ended up getting his sannyas taken away. And also he actually ended up getting kicked out of this gone. But um, he would, would strongly encourage all his disciples to go out on book distribution. And, um, you know, uh, he, as I say, like he did, he, he um, when he would give a class I mean sometimes his classes would last for hours and hours but like he would he was really good at like you know just motivating you into feeling like you just wanted you know to to be really selfless you know just to just forget about yourself just go for it for Krishna you know just you know and so I used to listen to him you know talking these kind of classes and like and most of the devotees were out on book distribution and and I used to think that I would really like to be out on, on books and uh, and actually even even when I was a student the the one the, on the Thursdays which was when the Namahat day was in Liverpool um, that day when the devotees would would come to Liverpool for the day I used to meet them in the morning and help them distribute books because I just I, I like to do it and I. I had this idea that it would be really fun and easy, <laughs> but when I when I first tried it, it was not easy. Um, I think I managed to give out like three books, but um, but anyway. But once I moved to the temple, I'd been there for like some I don't know weeks or maybe a, a couple of months, one or two months. But then this guru who was there, he he did he he asked me through one of the other devotees if I did want to go out. On books and I and I said yeah I did so that became my my full-time service um, which I really really liked I really liked talking to people and meeting people and mm. we'd go different places around Scotland um, but generally after a couple of years generally every day I, I, met, I went to Edinburgh the, the capital city which I preferred because in Edinburgh you meet people from all over the world um, visiting and and that's I, I like that more I like to um, meet people and ask to find out where they were from and and things and yeah I just I really like the way of life I mean it was pretty full-on as I'm I'm sure you know because um you know everything was you know quite military I suppose you'd say like or militant um you know getting there was just um and and actually, in hindsight, sometimes I see, like, for example, the Ayurvedic doctor in India, he said to me that he noticed that with many ISKCON devotees that he treated, that their way of life in the temple was quite Rajagoon. <laughs> um, that's, that was his kind of sort of analysis of it. And I suppose looking back, I can see how it 
you know it was like that in terms of everything was so you know there was no time for anything just rush rush and you know get up for the morning program quickly as soon as the morning program had finished um quickly get your plate of prasad and you know we couldn't we had to take the plate into the car with us and you know have to take prasad in the car on the way because there you know wasn't enough time for for uh you know for 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 even eating in the temple but um yeah i just i i love to to, to be out and, and speaking with people and then and also one of the other like good things about that, that was i felt was instilled in me from the beginning um by that particular guru was um as, as i mentioned uh, you mentioned in my bio that the main deities in the temple are shushi kodinitai and maya purushashi so um I remember in the very beginning, one class where he was talking about Lord Nityananda and he was saying that um, you must take Lord Nityananda as as your own, you know, take him, he's yours. And um, uh, it, it, yeah, it created a big impression on me. So every time I was out and um, on books or whatever, I was always, um, you know, I wasn't, really praying to Krishna I was always praying to Lord Nityananda and I always felt that he was doing everything and you know such funny things would happen or um just yeah just un unusual things that there was never never a bad day even when the days were difficult you would always meet somebody who was like really nice and um so yeah I did I did really I did really like that that way of life and then we'd come back in the evening and have Gora Arati and um and take prasad and then just try to get enough sleep <laughs> for the next day but i think for those years that i mean i was only there five years but i think i must have lived on like probably not very much sleep <laughs> for those years that's the only thing isn't it i guess at that time i mean i remember like i couldn't really sit down and chant my rounds because as soon as you sat down i would just fall asleep like i couldn't um you know just uh to like walk and chant just to try to stay awake so there was I mean I guess there's pros and cons but yeah it was a great way of life I loved it I loved it and that things were done a little bit differently in that temple than compared to other ISKCON temples because that that guru he was he was quite strict um so for example he or his disciples followed like Nirajal Akadashi every Akadashi was Nirajal um you know nobody would take anything which um I, I did it as well because just because everybody else was nobody told me to but um but I thought I would. And also I liked it because on Nirajala Kadashi, I did I liked not taking any injections. You know, I liked, oh, I'll have a day, I won't, I oh. won't take any facade and I won't have to take any injections. So for me it was also like a kind of a freedom, a I suppose. But then it, it, it huh? It's like a retreat for you. Retreat. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Wow. I mean, I didn't realise then in hindsight, like I know more now than I did then. I know now that even when you don't eat, you still need a little bit of insulin because your body does still produce some sugar, like your liver produces. Mm -hmm. I didn't know that then. So that's why after every Akadashi, I always had a few days of really difficult, really high sugar levels. Um, wow. But, you know, I didn't really, like I said, I didn't, I didn't really mind. It wasn't really like at the forefront of my... Um, my activities or my thoughts it was just oh i just I just deal with it and and get on but yeah he was uh yeah he was quite 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 strict so um so yeah we, so we'd all fall in near jail and um uh yeah there just wasn't really any time for 
um, I guess to, to like kind of develop relationships with amongst devotees that was not encouraged, you know, if like we spent a little bit of time talking to a devotee, um, you usually get told off for that, um, you know, because there's just no, no time mm. for that. So that was, um, yeah, a bit of a shame, but still, yeah, I just, I love that way. That's what I was going to say actually about them doing things a little bit differently because in most Discon temples they have Bhagavatam class every morning on a different verse each day. Um, but at, at that time, um, under that guru's instructions, they would often spend um, weeks um, just on one verse. Um, so, uh, what was it? and I remember when I moved there, the chapters that they were on were like the beginning of the so the first canto of Bhagavatam, kind of like fifth, sixth, I think like sixth sort of six seven eight chapters though those kind of chapters so a lot of those verses um really stuck with me and i remember especially like i remember in the sixth chapter where um narad muni is ex talking about his the sixth chapter he's talking about his pre his previous life and how he became narad muni mm -hmm. um and then he says that things that verse about um you know and, and thus i travel constantly singing the glories of the lord and um playing this instrument called a veena which is charged with transcendental sound and which was given to me by lord vishnu and um and so i remember we were studying those verses at the time of the in the morning classes and when i'd be out on books in the day i was just i would just even though like the book bags were really heavy and physically i was really weighed down but i felt so free um doing it you know i felt like i used to think of that verse and like oh i just feel like as if i could just travel around and just you know give up. <laughs> it's like oh yeah it was um yeah it was a lovely way of life i did love it wow yeah yeah so <clears throat> i don't yeah so even though that that guru ended up having troubles he seemed to be able to really impart some some good things in you for you know your foundation for Krishna consciousness and and some you know austerity. I mean, some austerities are good in the beginning. I think it's like going to boot camp. You know, it's kind of like you know, boot mm. camp. I think there is some something to be said for having that experience of yeah, like up in the morning and everything kind of regimented and because. At least for me, my mind was just so um, distractible and, you know, not very happy when I first became a devotee. So it was really good for me not to give it a chance to ruminate or think about, you know, so that kind of a schedule did it, it worked really well for me in my early years. So, so it sounds similar for you yeah. that it, it really worked well with and gave you a good foundation for your future years. So I'm just looking at the timing and I, so many things that, you know, I, I so I want to make sure that we, you know, can get to your later life. And um, so then you, at some point you just, you got married and um, we, you got married while you were in Scotland Temple. Yeah. Basically, when I was, at, I mentioned that I had a, a partner when I was at university. Um, and uh, actually, when I was reading the first, that first Prabhupada book, The Journey of Self-Discovery, I was, I was friends with him. 
and I told him about this book and he was although he was born in England but he's from a Hindu family his family are Punjabi and um, so he was the first person that I ever met that actually when I talked about like previous lives and things like that he didn't think that I was crazy because he'd been brought up in that culture of understanding about reincarnation um so um so we we was we were kind of together I mean we'd been together for like I guess a couple of years and when I moved to the temple he we both moved to the temple although he was actually he would he he would have had another year of his course to do at university but he actually quit his course to move to the temple um kind of encouraged by the devotees and actually um like you said some devotees and him being one often regret that later on um and he he really did actually after we left the temple mm. but um because because we were together when we moved there although you know i lived in the brahmacharini ashram and he lived as a brahmachari and we literally hardly spoke to each other for like those years that we lived there but because um after after i'd lived there for a few years um it was basically because i think somebody uh i don't know how i mean i'll try and keep the story brief because of, of time but um i think because like so, someone who i'd like sold books to and stuff had started coming to the temple and i think he'd asked the temple president about me you know at the possibility of like um you know i don't know marrying me or something and so then the temple president um then spoke to um to me and um kapil my first husband and it, and he said that maybe had we thought about maybe getting married um so we hadn't really thought about it but we just kind of um uh yeah he we just sort of decided oh okay okay we'll we'll get married so uh we got married at uh Bhaktivedanta Manor even though we lived in Scotland but because all our family were down south we got married at Bhaktivedanta Manor um so and then we carried on like living separately for a while and then for the for the last like six months of our time in Scotland we 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 lived in a little flat just next to the temple a little apartment but um, yeah, and actually, it was strange actually because I mean I think you know in terms of talking about previous lives and actually I used to like um, glories to your wonderful husband Karnamrita Prabhu. I used to really um, I used to really like his posts and the things that he would share about um, you know some sometimes the people that we're connected with in this life you know we have had a previous connection with um, maybe in a different rasa but um, you know. Yeah it's it's been there so um yeah although uh yeah um so we um sorry i lost my train of thought there but um yeah we decided that yeah basically yeah, that's what i was going to say it was strange because it was it was as if when we got married suddenly i felt like pulled by like dharma or something and like it, it was interesting because even when we first met it sort of like my friendship with him kind of had that effect on me um as if like I, I became like sort of like morally a better sort of person but then after we were married I definitely I really felt this and I in my whole life I'd never really thought about motherhood or wanting to have children or anything I'd never really like been much into like babies or anything like that but for some reason after we got married I kept I felt like oh you know now we should we should have a child we should you know that's, that's something important to do so mm. um so for that for that reason um 
I didn't want to, although as much as I loved the temple, but I didn't want to um, sort of force a child to be brought up in that environment without without an alternative, because, you know, there were pros and cons to temple life. <laughs> and um, I just, uh, so that was one of the reasons why we moved back down south um, in uh, 2009 to, uh, Firstly, to go to the Ayurvedic place, get healthy, and then, you know, have a child in the, where where they would be able to see different things. You know, we'd like to bring them up in Krishna consciousness, but then, you know, it'd be nice for them to see how different people live and, you know, make their own decisions rather than being sort of forced forced into anything. But, uh, but yeah, unfortunately, after we left the temple, like his uh, negativity towards Krishna consciousness just got progressively more and more and more. Um, and he had many, many regrets about living in the temple and, you know, it was a sad situation, but, you know, we're still friends now. So it's, um, you know, that was something that was important to me to make sure that we stay, we stay friends. Um, so that our daughter knows that, um, you know, that we care about each other. <laughs> yeah. And he's, he's the father of your daughter, right? Um, So yeah. it's nice that he's still able to be involved and that has worked out for you all. So were there some hard time, I guess the hard time being outside of the association of devotees and then having, being with someone who was not um, very, probably wasn't encouraging you so much at that time then if he was feeling pretty negative towards his time in the temple. So what were yeah. some of the challenges you had with that? Yeah, so yeah, as you say, really, yeah. I mean, the home situation was quite difficult, but um, we, by, when our daughter was a baby, we moved, we moved to Brighton and there was this, this uh, uh, public sangha going on in Brighton every week that's been going on for many years now. So um, I used to go there on a Friday and uh, take my daughter and uh, in the, originally her dad used to come as well, but then he didn't want, he, like I say, he, he didn't really stop, he didn't want any association with devotees, he just, he didn't even want to be reminded of Krishna. So um, I just used to go there with, with my daughter. Um, but because for me, that was one thing that I just knew that I could, I did not want to give up being around devotees. So at least, at least once a week, I would get to be around the devotees. Um, so although like home wise, it was very difficult, but um, I guess it's interesting because I'm just realizing it now, actually, but as I'm, as I'm speaking, but I suppose in the same way that when I first met the devotees um, back at university, I always knew that like, you know, no matter what happens in the week, no matter like what craziness is going on, that I know on a Thursday I'll get to see the devotees and that that will like, you know, so I suppose in a similar way, I knew that even when things were difficult, I knew that if I just didn't um, give up on on um, being able to be around the devotees and being able to be in Kiritan, then uh, that would that would be what, uh, yeah, what, what, what would help. And yeah, it, it obviously did. It obviously did help me because I never wanted to stop practicing, even when my practices were not very good. You know, like it, for example, when my daughter was a baby, it was hard to like, you know, chant much japa and things like that. But um, still, you know, the Association of Devotees always really helped me. Yeah. 
Yeah, so the separation, Krishna taking you kind of away from devotees, but still giving you that opportunity to come together at least once a week and probably, yeah, just increased your longing for it. And that is how we make progress is developing more and more of that feeling of, yeah, just wanting that. And I, I always felt that better to be in a situation, yeah, that you're away from the temple or whatever, that a situation that does create that feeling of really wanting to be with the devotees and to be with the devotees and and not be very and thinking that there's something better in the world it's a better situation to be the other way mm. it's nice to have both to be in association and love it and and that's yeah but sometimes in our early years krishna makes these arrangements to increase our our desire and so yeah so yeah. then so then what happened after that that you're then you felt that that relationship was too difficult to stay in because of his negativity and yeah and he didn't want us to be married anymore he didn't there came a point where he didn't uh, he wanted us to separate i mean it was probably a long time coming but um yeah, and I, I for a long time I didn't want it because of I think because of that kind of dharmic sort of mentality of thinking like no, we got married we have to stay married we have you know um, I found it really hard to like kind of give up that um, those, those things but yeah. eventually yeah I just had to uh, yeah I had to do it I suppose yeah I just realized it wasn't very good for my daughter to um, be around that negativity and you know so uh, yeah it was quite difficult um, I suppose one other big challenge for me also after that as I say it was all quite um, you know when you go through a separation it's very difficult and messy but you know eventually you know we as I say we are we are friends now and we stay good friends and I and um you know that that's all worked out all right but also it's one one thing that was difficult for me sometimes is that um often you know obviously devotees reading Prabhupada's books and you know Prabhupada says things in his books which you know as we know from my guru saying that they can be more sort of cultural and not necessarily like a blanket statement like for example like Prabhupada was would say I think there's a purple in the Bhagavatam about um you know that it's fair enough a woman not to stay with a husband who's you know um, fallen from his you know things but you know but not to remarry you know don't don't have another husband and become a prostitute and like for me that was like ah you know I really like um you know I was really I've really cried a lot about that <laughs> but then you know eventually I just realized that like these things are just like cultural and just to do with like Varanashram and these kind of things. And actually, you know, when I actually look at the bigger picture, because, you know, my, my husband now, Madan Mohan Prabhu, he's, um, you know, he's such a wonderful devotee and it was 
with him that we met our Guru Maharaj. And up to the point where, where we met our Guru Maharaj, I'd, I'd been practicing for more than 14 years, but I'd, I'd never actually been initiated, not, not formally. I'd had, there were various gurus that I'd aspired for, and they'd accepted me as an aspiring disciple, but for various reasons, I'd never actually got initiated, usually because I, I wasn't 100% sure. Um, but actually, because of you know, this relationship that I'm in, I, I, you know, I met my Guru Maharaj and the mercy, uh, you know, Lord Nityananda that's come, you know, is just, you know, was overwhelming. So when I think, when I thought about that, I thought, okay, well, if on the, on a superficial level, if, you know, if, you know, to be able to see the mercy of Lord Nityananda or the mercy of the Guru, that I have to be seen in that way, oh, if you remarry or prostitute then so be it you know like what does it matter because i would rather have that than you know than not have met my my guru or you know these kind of things if that makes yeah. sense yeah totally I, I i went through very similar situation of being in a relationship and married and having a child and then having a husband that really didn't want to be a devotee anymore and yeah, and the, the temple president at the time threw that verse out at me. He said, you have every, you should leave him, but don't ever get remarried. And, and I remember thinking, well, that's, there are other verses that says that a woman should always be protected, you know? So where am I going to get protection from if, you know, can't go to my father, my father's not a devotee, you know? So it's like, it doesn't work in this culture. I remember having that thought that that doesn't work because, you know, you can't get protection in this culture. It, you know, unless, yeah, unless there's some, you know, if there would have been a, a woman's ashram or something where, I don't know, but I just, it, it was kind of silly to me. I didn't, take it so seriously and especially from that particular devotee who was telling me that he had left his wife and remarried another woman and it, it just didn't seem to all you know somehow there seemed to be some something just didn't match up and I thought no you know we've got to all do what we feel that will help us in our Christian consciousness and and that was you know for me meeting Gurmash was such a breath of fresh air on these these kind of issues you know because yeah he's just so um practical and just yeah you do do what's favorable and um but yeah mm. I, I i went through this when you when you when you said that <laughs> i thought yeah that's exactly what what was thrown at me after <laughs> you know go ahead get get divorced but don't ever remarry <laughs> So yeah, so so yeah, so you've been together now in Brighton for how long with um, Adam Mohan? Uh, about maybe about six years or so. Okay, and you've been running a lovely program. It sounds like a couple different programs there. You're doing yeah, um, we've. Sorry, yeah, yeah, we've been doing our, our home uh, like Sunday. Sunday Sangers since um, 2016, we started doing those um, on, yeah, on Balaram Purnima. So just the year before we met Guru Maharaj. 
um, we started doing those because, um, yeah, one thing I like, I, the, the Devotees in Brian, it's a wonderful community. And one of the first things I noticed when I first moved here, um, or, or even when I first visited after leaving Scotland, was that the devotees are very warm here. Like I felt mm -hmm. so much warmth from them and everyone is, you know, very encouraging and warm. And um, as much as I loved living in the temple in Scotland, as I mentioned, that in terms of relationships with, between the devotees, it wasn't really quite like that. You know, it was more just, sort of, you know, just do your, do your service and, you know, but there were, you know, obviously there's, there's good in both. But one thing I, I noticed was that in, in many ways, they were kind of opposites the way it was in Scotland and the way it is in Brighton and and I guess one of those opposites is that in Scotland although we did do a lot of study as well we had you know the classes every day but in Brighton there wasn't really any like study going on um, so you know wonderful warm devotees who all love Kirtan but there wasn't there wasn't any study so um, and actually one of the things when when I first met Madan Mohan that I really liked about him was that he'd 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 studied the Bhakti Rasamrita Sindhu and he knew quite a lot about the writings of the Goswamis and I didn't know anything um about about those things I mean I read Nectar of Devotion but like you know he'd really studied the um you know Rupa Goswami's text and everything so um so I used to talk, I used to say to him, I'd really like to study it with you. And there was other books. I remember for years I wanted to study the Nectar of Instruction together with devotees because um, I, I always loved it. And it seems like such a simple book, but obviously there's so much to it. And so that was one thing we st we st we started off studying Nectar of Instruction and and Introduction to Bhagavad Gita. So we kind of we we take it in turns on Sunday. So one Sunday, Modern Mohan facilitates a study, and then the next Sunday I do. So we usually have two going on at the same time. So at the moment we're doing, uh, he's facilitating Bhakti Rasamrita Sindhu and I'm facilitating, facilitating the Shikshashtikam study because that's also something else I've wanted to study properly for a long time. Um, and, and actually that was one of the things also instilled in me in my early days in the temple was that we used to recite the Shikshashtikam like three times a day, you know, like we were encouraged to first recite it in the shower and then we'd recite it in the car when we were on our way out on book distribution and then when we got back in the evening after Gora Arati we'd sit down and we'd recite it again so I was always reciting the Shikshashtikam but like I felt as if like it's just I'm not, it's always just going over my head I want to know actually what it means so when I read my Guru Maharaj's commentary that was absolutely wonderful and so we we study from that and we read from the golden volcano of divine love of Sridhar Maharaj and uh, we read commentaries of Bhakti Vinod Thakur and Bhakti Siddhanta Prabhupada. So, yeah, so we kind of tried to get a bit more of a, a sort of a, a regular study going on here. And uh, yeah, we've, you know, we have really lovely devotees coming to that on a Sunday. And then the Friday programs, like I say, are more public and a bit more general. Um, so, but, but lots of new people come every week. So it's great. Great. And then when we if people become a bit more serious, then then we ask if that, you know, if they if they want to study more, then they can come to our home Sangha. But we just it's more really if they if they really um you know actually take to practicing and want to study. That's great. Yeah, and you give classes for the um Sri Chaitanya Sangha. And it's it's really lovely to, you know, for I know having women, it's a good example to have women that are giving the classes and inspiring the other women to yes, the, the, the importance of reading the books and understanding them. And so thank you for that example um, to do that for, for, 
for all the devotees, but especially the ladies, it's, it's a, means a lot. So I would just like to ask you, what do you see as like the biggest change in yourself since you've been practicing bhakti as far as, yeah, just who you've become and as a result of it? Hmm, biggest change in myself. Um, well, sometimes I think it's hard for me to see that, but sometimes it seems more like, like I've had a lot of encouragement from from other people that point, have pointed out things that I don't see. Like, I, it's sometimes it's hard to see things in yourself, but like, for example, like, with my um you know like i love to um i love to to sing a lot as you might know because when i did the classes for the Tatva viveka series um i um i chose to actually that's that's one thing that helps me to be able to give a class is if i can sing a song <laughs> then if i can sing a song and then explain it then i find that i don't feel so nervous about about it so um so i i, I really like to sing a lot and I've, i mean i've always loved kirtan like i mentioned from the very beginning i thought it was so powerful but um and, and i've always i've always had a kind of an attitude of just um you know when it comes to singing just really just put, put your heart into it and i don't really care about anything else so i suppose in recent years um i've i've really had so much encouragement on that and it also from from my as well um and i i didn't i don't really realize it my myself i suppose but like people yeah a lot of people have commented to me about when they've heard me chanting uh or doing kirtan that um that it's, it's made them want to um um chant more or or chant louder or um my gurumaraj said said to, that I chant with full heart and I, I just think I don't think so but I would like to um you know he's encouraging me but um so I suppose in terms of change that I guess um yeah it's kind of hard to put into words but that um that at least yeah I don't really know how to say I mean that I would just try so like despite whatever else is going on just, just to try to uh to, to chant with as much um as much of your um your your energy as you can and then and that seems to have a very it seems it seems to ha to help people i mean from like i say just from from what people have said said to me i've had some really encouraging things but um so yeah very it's powerful very powerful medicine for us and for others and yeah it's the, the medicine and and the elixir at the same time for you know taking us it, it takes us from our very beginning stage of walking into the temple knowing nothing and to all the way well it's eternal we go into the we go into the um, Nichilila and we'll always be chanting with our heart, becoming more and more <laughs> in, intensely praying and chanting. So it's really beautiful that you have that, that taste and that experience with, with Kirtan. It's, 
Well, yeah, I suppose that's yeah, it's helped me the most. But yeah, sorry, I don't, I don't really know if I answered that question because it's hard to know really what's the biggest change. Perhaps also the dharmic thing that I was saying about. I think I've moved from like you know that a lot of these kind of super, I guess you know like uh, I suppose Dr. Shridhar Maharaj would say about the difference between the sub substance and the form. I suppose that mm. um, you know that what we sometimes what we see we think is important is not actually <laughs> um it's not really the essence um so I, I i'd like to think that i'm more concerned with the essence now i hope <laughs> yes yes i'm sure i'm sure and especially from from, from meeting a, a guru Maharaj, Swami, that's like you know he just explains things in the, the best the best way um, yeah, such the most balanced way. I just I absolutely love how he explains things. It's, and it always surprises me and always I'm always learning something new every time I hear him. I, yeah, yeah, I'm grateful for that. It's wonderful. So as a last question, just because we're going to have need to wrap up is any any insights or gifts that you've mind in your own heart that you would want to share or give to the devotees listening to today's interview um well i'm not sure i suppose one thing i was thinking just that i remember a couple of years ago when a, a class that our guru maharaj was giving on i think it might have been on nityananda triodasi or, or balaram pranima i'm not sure but i remember asking a question about the um the necklace that Balaram wears, because in the, I think in the Nectar of Devotion, it's described as being um, a Gunjamala. And then in the Nectar of Devotion, it's got in brackets, like small conch shells. But I wasn't sure if that's a correct translation. And I was asking, Maharaj, is that, um, are they, or, or are they actually like some sort of seed? And then he explained about them being like a, a sort of, a, I think, a seed that looks like a small conch shell or something. But then, mm. but it was funny because how he concluded the answer to that was that he said to me that, um, so what it really means is that the, um, the, the little that you have might not really be so little. And um, I really like that. And I think about it a lot because, you know, we don't really realize that we have much or we don't think that we have much, but then like I was saying about that, you know, the people have been so encouraging to me when they've um, heard me doing Kiritan, like afterwards, they've been said like such really nice things that show how much they've been affected by it, that I, I suppose that that's, that's the thing that kind of stands out to me, that really we don't realise that we have much, but maybe that, like, like Guru Maharaj said, the little that you have might not really be so little. Mm. Um, so I really like that. It's really beautiful. Yeah. So maybe it goes for everybody as well, right? Absolutely. And we all, yeah, we all have our gifts and they're very individual. And all our gifts together make for a, a very wonderful festival. So yeah, and we all contribute at what we have and it we don't compare, we don't need to compare ourselves to somebody else's gifts because that's we do a lot. The nature of the mind is always comparing, but we, what we have is, is special. And I, I love that. That's a really nice thing for you to share at the end. So I just want to 
give a second or two for people to ask questions if anyone has a question. There is a um, comment on the chat. Thank you for sharing your journey. Um, this is Krishna Kumari Dasi. I have another appointment, so I have to leave a bit early. In your bio, I think it said that you dressed Vrindavan, oh, Brinda Devi. And I was curious about that. And I'd like to talk about that experience if you are willing. Any words you'd like to share about dressing Brinda Devi? Um, um, well, yeah, it was something, it was a service that I was taught after quite near the end of my time in the temple. So probably maybe like the last year or so. Um, and uh, I think my, my friend taught me to to uh, to do this service because she thought I think she thought I was being a bit um, on the mental platform too much, <laughs> so she thought that maybe I should like learn a new a new service. Um, and the one one thing that I'm eternally grateful for that service. I mean, it was it was lovely. So I'd, I would wake her. I can't. I think I did wake her in the morning. I think I would wake her, and then. Um, bathe her and I would choose her clothes and, and iron them and choose her jewelry and everything and, and dress her but but one thing that I always find very special is that because when I lived in the temple like I said I was never initiated I didn't even have Harinam initiation and shortly after I left the temple in 2009 um, the uh, I think the minister of deity worship went there and he sort of assessed all the standards and everything and lots of things were changed and um, one of the things that was changed was that, um, I mean, you, that you couldn't do Vrinda Devi's puja um, without at least having two, both initiations, you know, at least. So, so when I look back and I think, wow, which, well, I, th I think she was really merciful to me to uh, allow me to, to have done that. Um, even though like I didn't you know even though I didn't have one initiation actually when I, vis I visited the temple uh, when my daughter was little I took her there when she was two and um and and you actually um and at that time I was still not initiated because I hadn't, hadn't met Guru Maharaj yet <clears throat> and we you couldn't even go in her room you couldn't even go in the room where Vrinda Devi was um without initiation so it's quite different so I feel like wow she had <laughs> some special mercy um being able to uh, to serve her she was very kind to me there was so many shalagram shield there as well there was that was i think that's also why in the same room where vrinda devi was there was a, and actually there was a point where um i'm not sure how many they have now but in scotland at that time when i lived there they had twelve and a half thousand shalagram shilas so it was said to be more than anywhere outside of um india and nepal so uh yeah, there was. Uh, I think. I think that that, that was to do with the deity worship standards and being Vrinda Devi things like that. But yeah, I guess. Very merciful, Vrinda Devi ki jai. Jai. Anybody else have a question that they would like to ask? Hari bol pranams. Jai hari bol. <laughs> I don't have a question. I just want to share my appreciation for for your story that you and Madam Mohan are both a very very great inspiration for us and I'm sure many others thank you thank you for sharing that
Okay, well, I guess we should wrap up and say thank you for, for coming today. And it was a beautiful interview. I know it's maybe not the easiest interview today, but you did it, you got through it. And um, yes, we'll definitely um, be in touch. I'm gonna write back to you and we can have some, some further discussion. So Hare Krishna, all of my dear devotees, we'll see everybody soon. And thank you, Anangamanjari Devi Dasi, for being on the call and doing the translation. I hope it was it was not too too hard to understand with these English accents. <laughs> We're throwing so many different accents at you. <laughs> So thank you so much. And I know it means so much to those beautiful devotees, Spanish-speaking devotees on the call to have the translation. So thank you, everyone. And we'll be back next week. Hare Krishna. Jai. Thank you so much. Thank you, Jai. Haribo. Panchakopas, Trubis, Chakripas, and Vachapati, Tanambhavi, Nidhi, Vaishnavi, Anamana, Maha. Hare Krishna. Hare Krishna. Hare Krishna.